Radio Entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here. <laughs> welcome, to our, welcome to our first live event. We actually can't really believe that we're here. It's, we, I started this podcast with my partner Patrick about two years ago in August, right before 2049 came out, and I was like, who's talking about this movie? Not just 2049, but of course... 2019, the movie where all of this takes place, all, where all of it begins. And I was like, we should start a podcast. And Patrick was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I'm sure. So we did. And then about five months later, we met Dan and Dan came aboard and we decided to go for it. So we're really excited that we're here in this banner year of 2019. We're excited that we're joined by so many of our friends and our fans and people who support us via Patreon and uh, we hope you really enjoy what we have in store for you today. Uh, thanks. That's Jamie, the founder, by the way. Sometimes we forget to introduce ourselves if you haven't seen us. This is Patrick. I'm Dan. Um, thanks for that. And, and thank you guys again for coming. For all of us, uh, for all of you guys who support us in, in many different ways, you know, we, uh, we really try and hold the voice of fandom as much as possible since we know that we have, you know, the only podcast platform for this film. And so we know how important it is. And, uh, you know, we really try and give voice to all you guys' varying opinions, you know, what cut do you like, all those things, and, and, you know, invite your opinion as much as we can. And this is a live opportunity for us to do that. And so, you know, a year ago we predicted, I think, correctly, that no one was doing a big event in L.A. for this important month. That's only going to happen once. That's it. So we said, you know, let's just take the baton and run with it and make sure something happens. And so here we all are. So, uh you know, be, be proud for being here. We, we certainly are. And uh, we're really happy that you guys can join us. And I'll pass it off to Patrick. Thanks, Dan. So here we are, Los Angeles, November 2019. A date and a place that for so long seemed so far in the future. It seemed like such a, a, a far-off time and a far-off setting. And yet it's real and it's here, right? It may look different but we are sitting here in Los Angeles in November of 2019, and that is a huge deal. And we just want to take a moment to thank all of you, all of those not only who support us, some of those who are just Blade Runner fans who showed up, some people who got brought along wondering what the heck is this event all about, um, and those of you who have been a part of this fandom for decades and decades and inspired generations of new film fans to come into this ever-expanding family of this movie that is a continuing miracle that never grows old, it is evergreen, and it is so exciting to talk about. And that's why we have like coming up on 100 episodes of this podcast. So, thank you all for being here and without further ado, let's give a warm welcome to our incredible guests for this evening, Paul M. Salmon, Charles DeLazarica, and Joanna Cassidy.
Thank you all so much for being here. <laughs> so we're going to start with Miss Joanna Cassidy tonight. Uh, as a Golden Globe award-winning actress, you have created many unforgettable characters over your decades-long career, which is still continuing and still generating unforgettable characters. But Blade Runner is a film full of interesting female characters who have become truly iconic, including Zora, of course. What do you think makes the female characters in Blade Runner so special? Hi, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for being here. I'm, I'm just giving myself a little break while I think about this. It's a good question uh, because the characters in, in the original Blade Runner, I think, were extraordinarily special. Um, and... I, you know, the, because the, the film was the first one, uh, it was raw. Ridley has an uh, extraordinary sense of visuals. It's funny that he, he picked a, a blonde, a redhead, and a brunette, you know, one of each. Um, and each female in, in the movie did have such a different uh, energy and uh, look. Uh, listen, I, I mean, I'm separating myself from my character right now, but I, I really, I, I thought my character was pretty damn terrific. <laughs> I mean, just uh, something really unique, and of course, you know, I got hired because I had the snake, so, uh, I mean, aside from that, uh, it, they they were unique and and of course because of the, it was the first Blade Runner, the replicants weren't as uh, nailed down as they were in the second Blade Runner. I found the second Blade Runner to be m much more um, separated. They weren't as uh, viscous is not the word, but uh, real. They didn't have that heart. I thought the women in the first Blade Runner had a lot of heart. So I, I, maybe that's the answer to your question. Maybe not. I but. think that's a terrific answer. And I, I guess just briefly, it, you, when we had the tremendous pleasure of having you on our show, um, we asked you a similar question that was more targeted towards Zora specifically because she's a character who I think so many of us find fascinating. And um, you had a, a beautiful little recollection of, uh, of a dream that she reminded you of. I don't know if you remember this. But you said, you said she represented a dream of flying. Um, if you could just, in you know, a couple of words, kind of sum up why Zora, in particular, is a character who has held such resonance for us for so long. I think I, I think I sort of remember what I was talking about then, and I spoke about how I don't know whether you've had it, but I, and still do occasionally, have dreams of flying. You know, where you're running along the ground, and all of a sudden you sprout wings, and you can fly. And um, a lot of times you end up waking up, but I have had those flying dreams, and I always felt like Zora was, in a way, an inspiration to make people believe that they could do more than, they, than their mind limits them to, because we limit ourselves. 
our thoughts only go so far. And because Zora had such a, a, a will and a drive and determination to live and to go beyond the four years that, four years that she had, there was a passion and a power and she was willing to try to take off, try to fly. And that's how I really saw that character and I believe that's what we were talking about that day. Exactly, thank you so much, I really appreciate it. So Charles, Charlie, next question's for you. You've had a lot of opportunities to collaborate with one of the greatest directors living, Ridley Scott. What surprised you about working with him? Um, hi, everybody. I'll have to say hi really quick um, and warn you that I woke up at 4 a.m. Eastern time to fly here, so that's 1 a.m. your time, and I'm a little bit like that right now. So that's a hell of a question to start off with. Uh, what surprised me about him? Um, just his, uh, his drive, his, um, his, his, his inability to let go of things that he really wants, like he just fights and fights and fights until he gets what he wants. And then, and then he's also very pragmatic. Like he'll turn on a dime and say, that's how the clouds look, so we're gonna shoot it. I'm not gonna wait an hour for the sun to break through. It's like, that, it's kind of weird where you think he's such a perfectionist on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's kinda, he just goes with the flow. You know, and sometimes you have happy accidents. He's, I've heard him use that phrase quite a bit, happy accidents. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess it's just how kind of mercurial and different he can be when you expect him to go one way, he'll go another way, but it's usually for the best, or it's usually more Ridley than reality. You know, it's just more works for, for his universe that he's creating, for his, you know, his world that he likes to create. Was there anything, when you were working on the restoration, the final cut, was there any limits that he said? Was there anything that he was like, oh, let's do this, or did he give you complete freedom to do what you could do? Um, I mean, what happened was is I put together a list of possible changes and fixes for the final cut and ran that by him, and he would just go down the list and say yes or no uh, for the most part. Sometimes I had to make a case for it. Um, sometimes I got overruled at, like deep into the process after it had gone one way and then late it went another way and I was just like <laughs> um, and then sometimes he really just it was, it was hilarious there was one time when um, it's the shot of when Gaff was flying Deckard to the Tyrell Corporation and it's like kind of like fly around to the landing pad um, originally it was just the miniature of the Tyrell Corp building and then just orange toxic haze in the sky and we asked uh, John Sheely, the visual effects supervisor on the final cut, and I went up to him and we said, do you want to add some city back there because it's just so flat? He's like, no, it's great. I like the, the line, the graphic of the, of the building. And then months later, we're like in the final stages of like coloring the film. He's like, you know, I, I kind of always wanted a city back there. <laughs> and I, I laughed out loud. Like, it was just so absurd. Um, and then sure enough, like within a week, there's a city back there. You know, it just, it just happened because he wanted it. Um, a lot of that, and a lot of interesting moments uh, with him where um, he would make something out of nothing, where like the shot, the famous shot of Deckard hanging off the side of the building at the end, looking down, and the, sp the spinner's kind of flying beneath him. Um, if you compare the final cut version of that to previous versions, there's more street lights. But how he did it was not getting a matte painter or a visual effects artist to add street lights in, we were actually you know, grading the film, doing the, the color correction on the film, and he had the colorist do these little power windows and just blow out the exposure on it. So basically it's just like 
little circles that he just kind of like put in and just blasted the exposure in within those little circles to create. And, and I think it was Stephen Nakamura, the colorist, he said, this is a new record. We have 18 power windows in one shot, which is kind of unheard of. Back, this is like in 2007. I'm sure now it's crazy time. But just things like that. Just like he would just throw you curveballs, but they were always kind of, and they seemed absurd in the moment, but then you realize, oh, that, there was actually a, a method to the madness, you know? And like, those were exciting. Sometimes you, you lost a few years off your life, but, you know, they're pretty exciting. I'm going to pass it to Dan for... Thank you. Um, I knew we were going to get, we were trying to throw Charles a softball because we knew he got up really early. So that was our softball, Charles. Good. <laughs> Congratulations. You answered very well. I'm awake now. <laughs> uh, and he told us something new that I know is not in any of the interviews that we've done with him before. So that's, that's news to us. Really cool. Um, Paul, I, my, my question for Paul is um, you've been writing about and have been working in the film industry for decades. Um, and we're, we're familiar with your body of work, but Future Noir has really become a true classic. You know, all of us, probably most of the, most of the crowd here has read it several times. Um, but looking back on it now, what is your favorite moment in the book and why? Well, <clears throat> first, hello. <laughs> Thank you for coming out. Did you notice how appropriately misty and smoggy looking it is out there? Cool. Um, yeah. Um, well, you're right. I, you know, it's funny. Uh, you get typecast uh, within publishing and in the industry just as much as you would get typecast in uh, the acting profession. But as somebody who essentially started as a junior advertising executive with Disney and Universal in the early 80s, um, I happened to be at a certain place in a certain time when a lot was going on in genre films. And, gee, I wonder why. Uh, maybe two little movies called uh, Could It Have Been Close Encounters and Star Wars? But all of a sudden, this stuff started to come up. And so I'm getting an answer to your question slowly. <laughs> Anyone who knows me knows it takes a slow amount of time for me to answer a question. Um, but essentially, I knew Philip K. Dick, and I, I'm, I'm a hardcore uh, science fiction literature fan, as well as others. I've got Catholic tastes. I read all kinds of stuff. But I was fortunate enough to meet him in 73 and then be around when the first um, attempts to option the book and turn it into a script happened. So I was following it and following it and following it. And so by the time it finally happened, I'd already been in the industry, really in the industry for about three or four years. So um, like Charlie said, the, one of the fascinating things was just to watch Ridley because I met Ridley literally the day, it's, it, people have told me different stories, but it was either the day he was hired or right after the day he was hired and he had just gotten ensconced in one of the production offices in Gower Gulch. <clears throat> and um, he was fascinating from the get-go. Three-hour conversation we had the very first time we met. We just sat down and talked about everything except Blade Runner, you know. And um, from that process and being there and writing all the different versions of the book and writing things for Cinefantastique and Omni Magazine, and incidentally, a lot of little articles that were done under pseudonyms. My pseudonym used to be P.B. Bean, B-E-E-N-E, -E -E, and I'd scatter those all over other media. So by the time I actually had the book come out in 96, which took me essentially four years to write, um, that you asked me what is my favorite part of the book. The very fact that the book came out and <laughs> was my favorite part of the book. Um, but I, I had two hidden agendas in that book. Actually three. 
One was, I want, particularly at that period of time, there was a lot of the so-called new journalism that had started in the 70s with guys like Wolf and Tom Wolf and people like that, where the journalist was the star of the book. And I made a conscious decision not to be the star of the book, to let the people who made the film be the stars of the book. So that was decision one. Decision two was to, without getting too corrosive, show exactly what really goes on when you make a motion picture. It's hard, and it takes a lot of different people and a lot of sweat and a lot of tears and a lot of arguments and a lot of moments of ecstasy. <laughs> and as Charlie was saying, a lot of moments that kind of go, eh. So I saw all that. And um, as the years progressed and the different versions of the book came out, uh, which I was able to do, and incidentally, I've written almost 30 other books, and I have another one coming out next year, which I can't talk about, damn it. <laughs> But <clears throat> you, might, you might find it sprinkled about here and there on the net soon. Um, it became more interesting to me the tales of, believe it or not, the performers. And I got more into the process, particularly in this last edition, where I have the long interview with Rutger Hauer and with Sean Young and with Harrison Ford. Yeah. And um, there's three of them. And um, it was particularly Sean, because I've known Sean for a long time. And, and, and Sean, as we know, is, shall we say, controversial. And I think in that particular moment, I caught her when she was being her most honest and at the same time uh, showing a facet of her personality that she normally doesn't. So I think the latest edition, it's the Sean Young and the Rutger Hauer interviews. Because, as we know, Rutger passed on July 19th, and it was very, very unexpected. Even his closest friends, like Paul Verhoeven, the director, did not know he was ill. Didn't know he was dead until he, you know. So that was very difficult. But essentially, that was it, I think, at this part. And I guess at this point, before I wrap it up, um, today, <laughs> as Joanna knows, um, there is now going to be a fourth edition of Future Noir, that I just sent in this morning before I got here, which has got... Are you going to spell my name correctly this time? <laughs> I just say Charlie D, you know, like Ali G, Charlie D. Um, yes, I do. And it wasn't my fault. That's one of the reasons. Ah, see, I'm already on the defensive. What can I say? Now, this is Hollywood in a nutshell. You know, be defensive. Um, no, that's uh, one of the big problems I have with the last edition is that I'm meticulous in my, obviously, in my detail work, but I also really worked to make sure that it was proofread correctly. And it was sent in and it was outsourced to another proofreader outside of the company. And when I got back the book, I just exploded. So I've been pushing for a long time for them to change it. And then they gave me the opportunity to expand the Blade Runner 2049 thing. So there's a whole history in there now about it, about how I feel about it, and also a few other things. And uh, that, that's brand new. That'll be coming out in January. So hopefully, uh, you know, this is actually the first time I've announced it. I literally turned it in this morning. Literally. Nice. That's awesome. We're, we, I mean, we've been hearing about it for a while, not knowing when it was going to be finished, but we're all excited to uh, read that version. Um, 
Charles, I just wanted to say that we, internally, we, we just use, like PKD, we just use CDL for you because we're like, I don't want to mess up the name. Let's not even screw it up. You know, so we just do that. And then obviously we look it up. But um, <laughs> this is going to be one for all of you. We were struggling to decide whether to put this at the beginning or put it at the end because we know it's probably going to blossom. But I think something that um, Blade Runner fans can relate to, uh, especially if you don't have a lot of friends who are, right? You're like the Blade Runner guy. So your friends at work make fun of you for being a nerd or you're like doing some cosplay or you're talking again about some philosophy about the book, you know? And so people are coming up to you. Um, and so I think often we have to find a way to kind of give an elevator pitch, right? Like people ask you, so what is this old movie about that I don't know anything about? And you find yourself in a situation where you have to give somebody a quick recap or whatever is important to you, right? So we were curious to hear from your perspective because I imagine the same things happen with you. You know, you have, you have friends in the industry and people know what you've been involved with, but it still must happen that people ask you about Blade Runner that maybe don't know about it. So essentially the question is, if someone uninitiated comes up and asks you, what is Blade Runner about? And I'll start with Joanna. What's your answer? I don't want to start. Okay, that's fine. You can, you can pass it. I do not it. want to start. Go ahead, pass it. That's fine. We'll give let's, it to Charlie. And, let, and let's frame it specifically. So you're in an elevator. This has actually happened to me. You're I, we didn't label an, this an elevator pitch. But, but it is. So, so say, say you're in an elevator with somebody, and they go, what's Blade Runner about? And you go, uh, what's, what would you say instead of that? Okay. My elevator pitch. There's a man. He's made his match, and now it's his problem. <laughs> Uh, Charlie, right? I just want to make sure I have that right. Um, well, uh, a long time ago, I would, have, I would have said that it was a story in a dystopic future about a burned-out detective who was tasked with killing four synthetic humans and in the process discovers his own humanity. Today, I would say, as I said in the Cyber Nexus book that Lou Tambone, uh, the essay collection that came out earlier this year, I say, Blade Runner, oh, hey, how you doing? There he is, Mr. T um, I would say that Blade Runner, as I said in Lou's book, is about death. The death of everything. I think it's about unrequited love. I think that Wherever it is that we started in this gigantic universe, and however the Earth split off, we have not conquered or mastered the art of being at peace, being more enlightened, evolving, and to me this was uh, Mr. Dick's uh, epiphany of how people struggle to find these feelings. And 
you could see that these replicants and uh, Ridley, you know, throughout all the characters was attempting to um, find some kind of recognition in a thing called love, whatever that is. It has a lot of definitions, but I really saw it as a love story. I just, I'm not going to let Paul get away that easy. Thank you. Those are, those are great answers. Um, for those of you who haven't read the essay in Lou's book, which I have, so I know what Paul's talking about. Can you expound on that just a little bit? Sure. Charlie said, wait, wait a minute. You're supposed to explain that. And I said, watch. Somebody will ask me the question. Ah. Um, yeah. Um, well, as Joanna says, uh, yes, uh, a great substance of the film and the original book is about empathy and is about the love that a human is supposed to feel as opposed to things that don't feel. However, <clears throat> to take Joanna's example, that love that is between Deckard and Rachel is doomed. She has a four-year lifespan if you buy into the fact that she's a Nexus 6, or even a Nexus 7 if you want to go to Blade Runner 2049 and start to do some speculation. That's dead. The whole environment is falling apart. That's dead. Animals, they're gone. That's dead. Compassion, that's gone. Little burst of it, that's dead. A quest to find some reason to keep living longer to go to your maker and say, please let me live longer. The maker says, I made you as good as I can make you. Sorry, that's dead. I just find the entire film drenched in the film noir nihilism of the late 40s, but taken to a whole different level. And I've thought about this. I mean, I love the film and I love the Grace Notes. I love Rooker's Tears in the Rain speech. I mean, there are life-affirming moments throughout. Joanna's performance, the character arc, where she goes through this, like, you know, goddess who comes into this dressing room to being a frightened woman on the run who is screaming for her life. You know, that's a grace note. But look what happens. She dies. You know, and so underneath it all, I just detected at that moment, for whatever reason, there was, this, there was either a conscious or an unconscious synthesis of despair, a real despair about where we were headed, where we were now, and look at us now, you know? I mean, I'm not going to throw this into the real world, but we're sitting here while impeachment hearings are going on. So, you know, things, things have not improved since Blade Runner. So that's one of the prophecies that I see in the film, the darkness, the darkness that keeps overwhelming and uh, maybe it's just because I'm Celtic and I, I have a dark, melancholy Irish side to me, but there is a part of me that thinks that that film is, at its core, a cry of despair. Well, I just have one response to that, and um, yes, it's, it's uh, dark and filled with despair, but we will die before we live. Well, I'll have to follow that. That's pretty profound. <laughs> well, we wanted to bring up a subject that we've discussed on our podcast quite a bit. It's rather controversial just in terms of the world we're living in, in terms of how people are 
treating each other professionally in professional environments, how people are treating women in professional environments. And a lot of our conversation around that discussion happens during the scene of Deckard's treatment of Rachel in that very specific scene. And we are curious how you process that scene. How you process that scene with, between Deckard and Rachel, the love scene, quote unquote, which isn't really, we believe, isn't really a love scene. Well, I believe that what you see on film is, like anything in movies, things are cut together, they're fixed, they're edited, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there were a lot of things going on. I, you know, many years ago, an acting coach said to me, uh, you don't have to be crazy to be good. You know, you just, you, you, you just do your job. But in fact, a lot of times when there's agita and uh, psychological disruptions, which there were on this film, there was a, a lot of agita. It was an expensive film. Uh, it was going over. Ridley didn't necessarily get along with the producers. They had different ideas. Uh, Harrison had different ideas. And um, Sean was very young, very young at the time, and a newbie. And I think there was all kinds of chemistry and energy going on that made that film very rough. I mean, it was almost—I mean, it was almost like a Me Too moment, uh, you know, in many in many ways. But it worked for this film, and of course, there are two gorgeous. I mean, she was gorgeous, and so you want to see this. But it's a, but it is the future. I mean, it's a it's a kind of quasi-violent love scene, and. It could have been done another way. I don't think it would have worked. I think it's uh, much more uh, tactile this way, and um, it just lent itself to the whole, the way the film was going in that sort of nihilistic um, way. Yeah, it was best off to, to Charlie, too, yeah. Um, <clears throat> when we were doing the final cut, um, we had the option of two different music cues for the love scene, a.k.a. the hate scene. Um, and there's the kind of sexy saxophone Vangelis cue that's in the film that everyone's, it's the famous love cue. Um, but then there's the cue that was in the work print that is far more uh, challenging and kind of darker and European. And, and, uh, and I thought that was far better, a far better fit for we, that scene. We like that too. Yeah. And, uh, and we had that in the final cut for the longest time, and that was one of those last-minute switcheroos. That and I Want More Life, Fucker, those, it was Fucker for the longest time, and it went to Father at the end, and then the, uh, the original love theme came back at the end. And then it went a long time with the work print version of the, of the love theme and Fucker. So, you know, there's that. Yeah, I would, and I'm 100% on board with Charlie. I would, have, I would have loved to have seen the alternate cue for what, when I was around watching that as much as I could, because that's, Deckard's apartment was, it was weird. It, it, it was very difficult to get into. There were a lot of lights outside, and it was a very narrow corridor, and it was more crowded inside than it looked. And, of course, you had nudity going on, which you didn't see, 
in the actual uh, cut, although Charlie has included the footage uh, on the bonus stuff. Um, because yeah, <laughs> he's a pervert, he said. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> uh, he's just kidding. Right? <laughs> Don't give me an opportunity. Um, anyway, uh, but having been there, uh, some people were calling it the rape scene. And I remember Katie Haber in particular being very upset by that, saying, what, why? And, and also, um, Michael Dealey, the, uh, the producer coming over to Ridley, and the, you know that hot light that's on Harrison with those Venetian blinds? Well, that's kind of a trope a cliche from film noirs, but they're usually more shadowy, and it almost makes him look monstrous, you know? It really is a strange moment. And oddly enough, um, Terry Rawlings, the editor, who was very sweet to me, um, he ran that whole thing cut together on a moviola once for me, and it was different when you saw it all put together. Even with the nudity that happened, it became more human, and it became less aggressive. So oddly enough, there was a different feel to it, at least in my opinion. But I think there were a lot of, as Joanna said, there were a lot of psychodynamics going on between what was really happening on the set, um, what the situation Deckard and she find herself in at that moment, Rachel, the fact that she can't trust her memories and she's, she's hesitant about even having sex because she doesn't even know if... She's had sex, you know, and so it's, I mean, I, I was just in Stockton-on-Tees, which is uh, Ridley's uh, birthplace. I just came back from three weeks in the UK where I was in Ireland, Wales, and England, and there are Blade Runner fans there too, you know, and um, I was, I kind of was attacked by a female journalist who interviewed me in Stockton-on-Tees, a really, actually a very good writer called Clarice uh, Laughlin. She's the writer for The Independent. She's a film critic for The Independent and BBC Five. And she goes, how can you defend that rape scene in Blade Runner? And I said, well, A, I'm not defending it. I said, B, that wasn't my choice. And I said, C, I don't think it's as simplistic as you're putting it. But yes, it is a jarring moment that in many ways tonally kind of doesn't fit with the rest of the film, in my opinion. But I just think... There was a lot of things going on. Sean broke down at the end of that, by the way. I mean, completely broke down. And she sank, to, I, I remember she kind of sank down and she was crying. And Harrison and Ridley were kind of surprised that she was that upset by it. But Joanna rightly put it, uh, uh, Sean was 21 years old. And she's suddenly in a big A-list production. And there's a whole set of unwritten protocols in Hollywood about what goes on on certain levels of films. And I don't mean that in a Me Too way. Uh, I meant in, in, in terms of knowing how to act and, and, and what to expect. And I think she was a bit out of her element. So it's a really, for me anyway, it's a very complicated thing. Um, thanks. Yeah, I, I wanted to follow up. I'm glad that all of you had something to say about it. Uh, it was funny what, uh, I'll go to Charles, and I think Jamie has something for you, Paul. But um, it's funny, I think, I've talked about this a lot, and I had not watched, watched the work print um, until recently, like uh, I think about a year ago. Oh, thank you. And um, that's the first time, I, but I listened to the Esper soundtrack many, many times, which is where that different cue is in the love scene. I didn't realize it came from the work print until, of course, I saw the work print for the first time. And I don't spend a lot of time, we've talked about the final cut a lot, and we've talked about kind of your, your, 
you and your team's decisions on the rabbit hole of how many things do we fix, how many things do we leave alone. So I don't spend time dissecting it saying, oh, I wish it was this or I wish it was that. But every time I see that scene, that's always my number one thing. I'm always like, I just wish that the work print queue was in this scene. So I was happy to hear you say that, that it was kind of like not your decision because now I'm 100% on board with every single decision you made in the final cut. <laughs> so Joanna, my follow-up question for you in the context of doing a scene where you're taking your clothes off in front of cameras and men. And how do you work that out? How do you internally decide, this is comfortable for me, I'm going to do this? Did you have to think about it a lot? Is it something you didn't think about? Um, well, you know, originally, uh, the, when we were dressing Zora, um, I had a friend of mine by the name of Marika Contempasas who did a sort of crocheted little, I would have looked like a little forest fairy. <laughs> it, was, it was green with a little, little bra and a little thing. And then suddenly it became dominatrix time. And... Um, Uh, what was the question? I got lost. In terms of nudity oh, yeah, and yeah, how you yeah. decide okay, to do back it. To that. Right, I knew, I knew it was somewhere in there. Um, oh, brother, it was not easy. It was not easy, but I had a pretty good shape then. And I had been, <laughs> and I, I had been, uh, you know, working out with the, with the dance teacher because we were going to do the dance. And so I, I was in great shape. I guess I sort of just went into sort of the ether mode. You know, I'm not a method actor. I come on the set, I know my lines. I go into a zone, hopefully. And because I had such a wonderful director, I trusted him. I knew he was going to take care of me, and that's a rare thing. There are so many times when you're not taken. I can't even begin to tell you, but definitely, uh, I'm more embarrassed now when fans bring me photographs, you know, where they stop the film and I'm lacing up my boots. Oh, brother. And they go, oh, Miss Cassidy, would you please sign this? Oh, and there's, you know, drool coming out. And I'm, I'm just going, oh, my God. You know, when, it, when it's going along, it's okay. But when it's stopped, it's like, oh, jeez. You know, I, I, I forget the moment. And, and actually, I think, you know, in reference to that, when you're in the moment and it's, it's kind of like you're flowing like a river, you don't think about those stops that people are going to capture years later. So I was able to trust and know that I was being Zora. I was being Zora. Zora was not embarrassed. She was a replicant. By the way, I only have one more year left. <laughs> That's okay. I'll go way beyond there. Here's a fun story about your nudity. Um, 
once again. <laughs> uh, after we delivered the final cut, uh, I had to go in and supervise the TV version of the film. And we spent hours scrutinizing frame by frame, <laughs> figuring out, do we blur it? Do we crop the shot? Do we add a little bit of steam? It was like, it was like Zora nudity science at some point. We were just getting down to like pixels, <laughs> pixel by pixel, figuring out, is that, a, is that enough to pass the sensors? So just so you know, there's like you know, three dudes in a dark room <laughs> figuring out what was too much or what was not enough. So. Can I? I, I, and I'm not, I can't top that one. Um, and actually, it's not for me to talk about your nude scene, but I remember what you told me 25 years ago, and uh, it's in the book. You said, I was mortified. Are you kidding? And you said that you, after you were around all of the showgirls, half of whom were half naked and so forth and so on, you just kind of relaxed and got into it. But you also said you had a great deal of trust. But I also remember feeling a a real enjoyment at your candor when you said mortified. I thought that was kind of cool, you know. <laughs> I thought that was very honest. So you know every spot and dot <laughs> on both of my breasts, right? <laughs> He's right. Oh my. <laughs> Well, this has taken a turn. Um, you know, we're talking about revisiting the film quite a bit, of course, for all the subsequent iterations of it. Um, oh, thank you, yeah. And, uh, and one scene in particular, this is for Charlie, that uh, is something that I, I think it would be fun to sort of get into, is the unicorn scene. Because this, of course, was a, uh, a little bit of a fracture for fandom and when the director's cut came out, right? And then when the final cut came out, it was revisited and actually worked on more. So uh, I guess we'd like to kind of hear you just take us into the headspace of working on that scene, where Ridley was with it, what you, where you were with it, um, and what that was like. Well, I mean, as Paul could tell you, the, the unicorn scene has an interesting history because when it first appeared to audiences in the director's cut, um, most people thought it was an outtake from Legend, which it absolutely is not. I've seen the dailies, the slates that say Blade Runner for the unicorn scene. It was shot for Blade Runner. But... Um, also, in the director's cut, that particular edit of the unicorn is not, was not the true intended shot for that bit. Um, so what happened was we actually, and, and because when uh, Michael Eric was putting together the director's cut, he was unable to find the dailies. He just found this one outtake. So that's what he put in. And it, it's a nice outtake. I mean, it totally works. Um, but when we did the final cut and we had more resources at our disposal, we found all the unicorn dailies. And we actually found the edit that Terry Rawlings had done of how it was originally intended to be, where it was just a shot of the forest and the mist, and then the unicorn appears, and Deckard cut back to Deckard at the piano, who's just kind of staring off into space. You know, he's not asleep. He's, he's, you know, he's visualizing it. So that's where there's a lot of interpretation could be dug out of that. But, um, but then, because Ridley did like the director's cut uh, motion of the unicorn's head kind of like flowing... We, we did a hybrid, so like the first part of it is the original unicorn cut that was originally intended back in the day, and the, the end of it, taking us back into the present, is the director's cut version. So it's a bit of a, you know, 50-50. Um, what's interesting about the dailies, though, I mean, there was endless, endless shots of unicorns, of, of the unicorn, but they had a horse uh, to kind of like tame it, to kind of like calm it down. 
Um, and the, the unicorn kept trying to like knock its horn off of its head. <laughs> um, for whatever reason, they decided to roll on this. There's endless footage of the, the, the horse, the stabilizing horse, mounting the unicorn. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it was so much, in the edit room, we called it Uniporn. <laughs> endless, endless shots of that. Why'd they roll? I don't know why they roll. You know, <laughs> one day I'll have to ask somebody about that. But, yeah, it was like, that was the unicorn experience for me. Oh, that, is, that is amazing. Thank you very much. Um, one of the perks of my recent trip was Ivor Powell, who is the associate producer of uh, <clears throat> both Blade Runner and uh, Alien, um, uh, and I have been friends as long as Joanna and I have been friends, and um, I was just at his home and I spent the night just before I came here from London, and uh, we did a couple of shows together there. And uh, we've talked about this over the years because when that particular thing was shot in Black Park, which if you've, if you've seen any of the old Hammer movies, you know, Dracula's in a bunch of ferns, that's the same place where they shot, you know, the unicorn. Um, but there is a slight connection to legend because Ebor has told me repeatedly, he said, yes, we shot it for Blade Runner. Yes, as you say, it's slated for Blade Runner. And, uh, and, oh, by the way, Charlie fixed the wobble in the horn, so you should get... There was always a slight wobble with unicorn horn, but Charlie's guys cleaned it up. Um, but there was also in the back of Ridley's mind that he was going to do legend. And Ridley being pragmatic, so it's... You know, there was always this false rumor that it was from legend or for legend. But let's say that maybe out of 100% of that shot, 10% of it was sort of a test in a way for legend. At least this is what Ebor has been telling me for a long time. That's really interesting. No word on what the unicorn was a test for, but... (laughs) I can just see people going frame by frame by... No, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Paul, this next one was for you. So, assuming that the script doesn't change other than to change the scene, but meaning the plot elements stay the same, we have the elevator ending. We have the Sunset Drive ending to the film. And I'll give it to Paul first, but if you guys want to chime in as well. If you had to do a different ending to the film other than those two, what would it be? I can't think of an improvement on the closing of the ele- elevator doors. I think it's a perfect. And also, also, you've had this like very moody, all-encompassing, hypnotic, absorbing score that's bluesy and sad. And then as soon as those doors cut, it's dum which just picks it all up into a whole different, you know, adventure kind of level, which in a sense it also is. Um, so I'm, I'm completely happy with that. I'm completely unhappy with that damn fake right into the sunset. I don't think anyone was happy with that. Although, um, as Ridley and Ivor, Ivor was talking about it when I, I was spending the, the, a couple of days with him, he was saying that was the only day of the shoot where everybody had a good time. <laughs> they all drove up in a couple of, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, 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 U-Hauls or whatever, up, up into Big Bear. And it was Sean, it was Ivor, it was Ridley, a couple of crew people, and pretty much that was it. And uh, they all, they were singing songs and listening to tapes and just having a good time. And it was one of the few times everybody was relaxed. But, you know, 
I, I knew that ending was coming before it was done theatrically. And the very first question I asked, and I think it might have been Terry, I don't know, it might have been Michael Dealey. I said, why in the hell did we just spend two hours in this awful city when you could go live in this beautiful forest? <laughs> and he goes, it's not our idea. Tandem, 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 if you know what that means. It was imposed on them, that, that fake ending. Uh, was not anything that anyone wanted except people who were very uncomfortable with the reaction of the original previews, which had the original elevator doors closing. They just thought, oh, we need to have a happy ending. And it's just like, hey, you know. I'm also one of those purists that despises the, the, the voiceover, you know, at least the one they used. Um, I think it's simplistic, badly written. And, but Harrison never, by the way, uh, uh, intentionally uh, sabotaged that. He, he read what was given. He's far too professional, you know, a guy to do it. He wasn't happy doing it, especially as many times as he had to do it. But uh, that's my long-winded way of saying that I can't really think of another way. Very briefly, the original cut, uh, excuse me, the original script had um, Rachel and Deckard on the top of the skyscraper. Uh, it's a very small-scale film, as originally involved. And uh, Rachel had an electric sheep in her arms, and she stepped off the building and committed suicide. And you cut to Deckard walking through a desert, starting to starve of dehydration. And that's where the tortoise comes from because he falls, and he's going to commit suicide himself, and he falls next to a tortoise that's on its back, and he watches it all day right itself. And then he decides to keep on living, and there's this cosmic pullback where you see the earth, patches of it are destroyed, but a lot of it is green. And that's originally how it was going to end, when the environmental theme was still very much there. So I guess there's, there's a, another way of ending it. And of course, that would mirror the book quite a bit, a bit more closely. Um, I, I'll go out on a, on a limb and say that the ending uh, as it is now with the doors closing is my favorite ending of any movie that exists. But I still want to challenge you. If any of you at any point during this panel have an idea for another way to do it, feel free to pipe to chime in. Because it's a difficult question. It feels very perfect the way it is, but the movie is so ambivalent and so complicated and it traverses so much emotional territory. There could be other ways of doing it. I mean, I, I agree mostly with Paul uh, in that the ending is perfect with the elevator door. I, it's not that I disagree. It's just I have a slightly alternate universe view of the, uh, the final cue, the, the, the end titles cue. It's a magnificent, driving, forceful you know, piece of music that I love listening to. But coming off of such an ambiguous, dark, delicate moment to kind of go you know, gangbusters with, with the score, where the film hadn't really done that at all previously... I think maybe there's, a, there's an, another cue that Vangelis could have done or did and just didn't use that might have been a smoother... Like a transition. Something a little more poetic, not like, it's the summer of 82 and we've got a rocket, you know? Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So um, that's my only, like, asterisk on, on that comment. I think the elevator door is the best way to end it. I, I do have a soft spot for the deleted scene, not of the endings, but of the... Uh, of, Batty and Decker on the roof, Deckard on the rooftop. Um, you know, one thing we didn't want to touch in the final cut was all the dis long dissolves, long shots of, of Deckard, you know, watching Batty die and staying there all night and all that because it was so beautifully edited to the music and the music in that scene is just phenomenal and, and so emotional. And if we started pulling that thread and started undoing the music and by, by changing the cut, 
because you know the dial or the, the voiceover was taken out, so there's just endless long shots of just you know Deckard staring and, and Batty doing that, which we could have easily just trimmed a little bit, but it would throw off the music, it would throw off the the, the really beautiful poetry of it. But in the deleted scenes, because I had the raw dailies, I just took my own crack at how to get through that moment um, without stepping on the toes of the film itself. So if you watch the deleted scenes in the in the box set. Um, I think it's, it's a little, I mean, it gets to the point, still poetic, um, and it uses more of the shots. But again, that wasn't for me to like force into the final cut or convince Ridley to do it. But that was like my little alternate universe experiment where you could see it, it could have been that. And if, and if you don't like it, it's okay. It's just there as a little thing on the side. So, uh, so another kind of up there question that we'd love all of you to answer in whatever order you like is, uh, you know, now that we're in a place in this franchise where we have another movie, we have this ongoing comic that's being co-written by one of the screenwriters of 2049, we have all this new, you know, fan material coming out, there's a real kind of uh, revivification in this material. So it has a lot of people thinking, what would a third Blade Runner film look like? So something that would be fun to get your thoughts on is uh, if you were responsible for another story set in the Blade Runner universe, as whatever the continuity is, whatever you want to take it, uh, what would that movie look like? Anybody who wants to go can, can go. That's an interesting question. Uh, first, I wouldn't want one, but that's just me. I think sequels, un- un- unlike Blade Runner 2049, which is an excellent movie and excellent motion picture but my only and I and I say this in the new edition of the book my only two quibbles there was a tiny bit too long I think that the scissors could have trimmed a few scenes and also it doesn't have that antic craziness that the first one has there are moments in the first Blade Runner that just pop out that are just plain weird and having said that I really love Blade Runner 2049 but if you wanted to be, at least in my opinion, logical and take these leaps, these temporal leaps, it would next one would be like 2079. And by 2079, you would almost be at the same point as the original novel, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Because in Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, there's been a third world war called World War Terminus. And there are hardly any people left. And they're all living in a decaying San Francisco that's, a, that's almost completely empty. And there are very few people there. And the whole point of this guy, Decker, trying to get an electric sheep to impress his wife, who's this depressive, who's addicted to a mood organ. And so it would be kind of interesting to almost go full circle. And at the same time, you would be able to keep this kind of continuity. But everything is collapsing in this world. The one thing I wouldn't do, which I think a lot of producers would do, is there was a suggestion of a replicant rebellion coming up in 2049, and God knows I don't want to see battle for the planet of the replicants. I say let sleeping dogs lie. Um, I I don't know where you would go with this, honestly. Um, However, I heard that (laughs) there was a little whisper that there is going to be a Blade Runner television series. I don't know if that's uh, really the case or not, but um, what honestly, what would disappoint me is if there were a third Blade Runner 
I, th I think things would get more automated and colder and colder and colder until there wasn't anything left except uh, robots. And I, I, I don't want to see that. I think we have to trend back towards uh, humanity and doing more movies about, uh, you know, back to that old theme again of um, um, evolving about animals, about, you know, relationships. So that's my answer. I'm good. Um, yeah, I mean, I have very, I have very complicated feelings towards 2049. Um, but I, um, one, one day I'll probably share this. There's, there's a really whopper of a story I have to tell you about the creation of Blade Runner 2, uh, but it might not be time yet. Um, but I will say, I think they shouldn't proceed with another film. I think all these other kind of like other media is fine, you know, games or VR or books and comics, like that's cool, like explore that. Um, unless a really super talented uh, visionary director and writer comes along that just cracks it and figures out, oh, I found a new way to explore this world. Because for me, it's always about the world, why I keep wanting to revisit it. You know, the characters are great. I love the characters. I love the themes. I love the story. It's just that I'm intoxicated by the world. And um, when, I was, when I was a teenager, um, this was around 1985, I remember, I had, I had somehow acquired a bootleg cassette of the, the true Vangelis score, because it hadn't been released then. And I would wait for a rainy day, and I'd get on a bus, an RTD bus from La Crescenta, and I'd come down here with my Walkman, and I'd go walking through the streets of LA in the rain, listening to the Blade Runner score, looking for neon signs and anything that was like Blade Runner. Because I wanted to reimmerse, not, not just reimmerse, but like truly immerse myself in the world of, of Blade Runner as close as I could. It was almost like a, a drug, you know, except it was real. And I was walking around just vibing Blade Runner for a day. And, and that to me is, that's, that's the texture of this universe that I love and I kind of missed in 2049. Because you can say, oh, there's spinners and there's big buildings and things, but it's different. You know, it's great, but it's different. It's just not the same thing. So, um... I would, I would say it'd have to be a very special occasion and a really special idea to continue it, but they shouldn't continue it just to continue it. I don't think there should just be a third one just to do it. Yeah, I agree on that. Um, and briefly, um, the whole point of the Dick novel, when Phil was writing The Man in the High Castle, <clears throat> he, uh, and I, I mentioned this in the book, he had uh, access to the closed stacks at the Berkeley Library, University of Berkeley, where they had uh, diaries that had been translated from the German by Gestapo commanders of camps. And one of them, the famous quote is, uh, it was a Gestapo captain complaining that he was being kept awake at night by the cries of starving children. And that really hit Phil deeply. And in a sense, that carried over, and he told me this, he said, look, he said, you know, that in essence was something buried in the man in the high castle, but when I got around to writing to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, that became the main theme, because in my book, the Andes, as they're called, the androids, are Nazis. They're soulless, you know, killing, you know, machines that look like people and kind of act like people, but they're not people, because they don't have empathy. And again... If you're going to go to a third one, which I hope to God they don't, but if they do, because what are the odds of having such an astonishing good film again like they did in the second one? 
But I, I would hope that they return to this whole thing of empathy. And you know, what is, you know, what is a genuine emotion and what isn't? Which is the whole thing on Blade Runner 2, right? Case, like Ark. And I love that cue at the end, you know, the tears and rain. It's the only time you hear the Vangelis music in Blade Runner 2049. Totally appropriate during his death scene. So switching gears a little bit, Paul and Joanna, you guys have enjoyed a friendship, like a lifelong friendship, having met on the set of Blade Runner. How did that happen? How did you guys form your, your friendship? You know, I, I, I honestly don't, I do remember, but I don't remember Paul in the, in the, you know, when we were shooting because he was, he kept very quiet and off to the side. So I, you know, we didn't interact. Most of my interaction was with Ridley and trying to stay in character with my snake and, <laughs> um, uh, I guess uh, we went to an event in San Diego. Was it San Diego or San? How many years ago? Okay, fifteen. And uh, we just got into a, a, a very interesting conversation, and, and somehow um, just blasted through that. Uh, you know, resistance that people have sometimes about doing a film together and they, they never stay friends. So, I don't know, somehow, maybe because we're Irish or <laughs> black Irish, Scots Irish, whatever we are, and, and, and uh, you know, emotional and passionate and all that other stuff, we, we related. So, it kind of happened like that. Yeah, Joe's right. Um, one of the things that I, you know, being embedded the way I was, um, I, I quickly, I, I had to make a decision. Was I going to be high profile, high profile or low profile? I mean, I talked to hundreds of people during that show. I mean, literally. And I always had my little tape recorder, and I'd be all going, click, click. And some people thought I must have been crazy. Who is this person? I mean, I was never introduced formally, except so it was informally. People like Michael Dealey, Jordan Cronin with, who I, I got friendly with and on the camera crew. Um, and, but I was always moving around and always in the background. But we actually did, did kind of interact a couple of times, you know. Uh, but you have to understand on a set, you know, things are very intense and, you know, you're... you're the performers are focused and you've got to do your stuff. And I'm kind of in the godlike position of being able to watch it all. But, um, yeah, Joe and I have a lot in common. And uh, we have, our, our paths have crossed prior to the one we were talking about. But there was a breakthrough moment where we both, I think it was, gosh, we had like a three-day long conversation, as I recall. We just never stopped and it was like oh okay you know like we were acquaintances and then we became like you know and uh, on the other hand like Ivor Powell I think I mentioned before uh, Ivor and I on the very first day we met started talking about the stars my destination by Alfred Bester who, who I highly recommend everyone of you read it's not 
known now as much as it should be, but it is one of the classic science fiction novels of the 20th century. It is one of the best science fiction novels of the 20th century, and people have been optioning it and trying to make it for 50 years. And Ivor, I go, we, he's, I said, do you read science fiction? He goes, oh, yeah, you know, Star's My Destination, boom. And that was it. And so uh, he still is like that. And by the way, I can't say what it is, but I have to really give Ivor big props. He has just finished a major motion picture that he has co-written and co-produced that is going to be coming out from a major producer and a major talent is involved in it. And you'll know about it soon. I can't really spill the beans, but Ivor has been plugging away for years and years and years, and he's finally got something huge coming out. You'll know about it soon. I'm on such tenterhooks after that. <laughs> like, what is it going to be? Um, I have another Joanna question. You've played so many interesting roles over your career, um, and you've spoken a little bit tonight about your process, about you know what it's what it's like to, to you know inhabit these characters. Which characters are the best to play for you? Which ones do you? What kind of characters uh, are fun for you to become acquainted with as an actress, an actor? Darkly comedic. Um, I, I did a, uh, a television series maybe eight years ago, and it was went on for five years. It was called Call Me Fitz. I played Jason Priestley's mother. It was a, a Canadian HBO project that came on um, DirecTV in the States. Hardly anybody saw it. I won two Canadian Best Comedic Actress um, Emmys, you know, the, the equivalent of the American Emmy, and nobody saw the show. <laughs> and I, um, we played a family of uh, car salesmen. And I, I was horrible. I was really horrible. I was horrible to my ex. I was horrible to my son and my daughter. And it was so much fun. <laughs> I just absolutely love that. And I just slide right into those roles somehow. I just, I just really do. It was sort of like the, uh, when I played Margaret Chenoweth on Six Feet Under... I don't know. I, I, it was just, it just suited me. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like jumping around, and then I did a, 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 a kind of quasi comedy, a comedy on uh, Bravo that was a scripted uh, Bravo show called Odd Mom Out a few years ago. And I was playing a really uptight uh, New Yorker. I don't know if any of you saw it, but I. That was the, my least uncomfortable because I, I just, I, I couldn't relate to that woman. And um, uh, uh, actually in the, in the, <laughs> the scripts just kept getting more demonic and more demonic and I, I just got, oh my God. And I've done some really strange things in this business. I mean, somehow I end up with writers writer-producers who have had horrible relationships with their mothers. <laughs> and they write about it, and I end up playing that mother. And so I, I do these really wretched things to my children, and uh, I, I have attitude, and I'm, sometimes people call me pistol mouth, <laughs> because I have one. And, um, you know, so... But those are the kinds of parts that really I just slide right into. I, I like that. I like that snappy, 
crazy, you know, quasi uh, crazy, you know, like Margaret just has, she had no conscience. I mean, I, I would sort of like to be like that in my life, and I have a terrible, I have a ridiculous conscience. I'm guilty all the time, and is that Irish guilt or something? I don't know, but anyway, um, that's what I like. So, so, so part of it uh, isn't about necessarily escaping uh, into a role. It's about inhabiting something that you feel within yourself, but you can't really express somewhat. Like, you have those tendencies, but they're not really coming out, and it gives you an outlet for it, or is it a chance to do something you couldn't do otherwise? Well, you know, I, I grew up in a small town in New Jersey and with um, uh, very, uh, uh, I would say, rigid parents who had suffered in the Depression. And um, it, it, it was like being, a, you know, a large Tyrannosaurus Rex being put in a little um, square. Um, I, I had to fit the role, et cetera, et cetera. And so to break out of that box, uh, this, the, the acting business has given me an opportunity to um, blow out any <laughs> any walls I may, may have created earlier on, or with, were created for me, rules and all that all that other sort of stuff. And uh, you know, and and I get to be really fun, and and I get to say things that are really horrible, that are not easy to say in the world. And it, it's it's just great. So uh, you know that's that's what I love. But I also love doing serious things too. I mean, I I um, I long uh, for the day that I can work with some really. I'm, and and I've worked with phenomenal directors before, but I I I need to work with some other good ones soon. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I was going to ask a different question, but since we're on acting, I'll I'll throw you guys an easy one and, and whoever wants to go first but um, for, for the two of you who aren't uh, haven't taken as many acting roles uh, and certainly didn't in Blade Runner when you watch the film or the deleted scenes uh, even if you don't have aspirations to act is there ever a role that you see that you're like that'd be kind of fun to play that guy or that girl um, and then for Joanna since you obviously played a main character um, is there a different character that when you go back you think, oh, it'd be cool to also do that part? So if you, if you have a role in Blade Runner that you could see yourself playing, that would be fun. Uh, yeah, Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Um, probably, uh, oh gosh, let me think. Um, Captain Brian. I need to put on a few pounds and I could play Brian easily. That, there's a side of me that's not nice, you know? And uh, that would be very easy for me to do. By the way, he was a really funny guy. He was a wonderful guy. Uh, and uh, Mike, uh, as people called him, uh, <clears throat> he, was, uh, he was just hilarious and full of life, and he had done so much work, you know? I mean, blood simple, right? You, you, yeah. But he had done so many other things before that, like straight time and, you know... Uh, Gosh, he goes all the way back to uh, the, the late 60s experimental stuff. and I could have done that one, I think. You're talking about playing a role actually in the film, not the character in the fictional universe. Um, well, I would go with Holden, because you open the film, you sit in a chair, and then you spend the rest of the time in a hospital bed. Um, <laughs> it's fine with me. <laughs> you know, but, but you know, acting in general very quickly... Um, it, 
as someone who found himself, uh, well, Charlie has been in the same situation where he's been on many different productions. I, I added them up one day, and it was over 100. And I was shocked that I had been involved in that many pictures. And I have met so many different performers and, and crew and technicians and, and producers and all this. But I always, when I first started, one of the mystery spots for me were actors and actresses. Because, I mean, I never, I never felt uncomfortable around them, but I, the process was something that I didn't quite understand. And everyone's different. You know, it's just like people are different. But I really have learned and come to cherish actors. I really do. I really like them. And I think they have a really tough job, the good ones anyway. And I think that it's very difficult because you have to be emotionally naked. You have to have a concentration that's very difficult. I think it's not an easy profession. <laughs> that's put it mildly. But I have really grown to have a deep appreciation for performers. I mean, I always, as an audience member, I always liked a good performance. But to be on set or to watch auditions and what they go through, and, and you know, you're always trying to get a part, and when you, do, when you have a part, you're worried about the part. And, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole way of living that I had not really understood or been empathic about. And I think that's really changed for me. Couple questions. First question for you, Charlie. Um, when you were working on the restoration, the final cut, while you're going through all that footage, all those boxes full of so many things, was there any point where you were like, you found something that hadn't been seen before by probably essentially anyone, maybe except for Ridley Scott, where you're like, oh my God, we have to include this or something that surprised you? Every day. Every day we found something that blew my mind. I didn't know existed. Even, you know, after studying Paul's book, I, you know, there was stuff that I didn't know existed, you know. And it was, that was, I, I've said this many times, it was like Christmas every morning. It was just opening the boxes and be like, oh my God, here's a scene that I didn't realize existed, or here's footage of something that I thought was lost forever. Um, but uh, the, the first moment, I mean, we found a lots, like lots of little bits that were really interesting, like, um, Batty chasing Decker throughout Sebastian's apartment, and you know Rutger Hauer was just improving different ways of being weird and doing kind of cool, strange things. Like he was electrocuting himself, and he was just doing all of these interesting bits. So you know, after days of seeing endless takes of this stuff, you get—it's not that you get numb. It's always exciting because I was—I was handwriting these notes down to say, "This is for the final cut. This is for Dangerous Days. This is for deleted scenes. This is for something else." And so I was very focused on these 997 boxes of film that we went through. Um, but the day that I really thought, oh, here's something really interesting, was uh, it's after uh, the Esper the sequence and in the deleted scenes, there's a bit of voiceover where Deckard says, you know, I needed the streets and I needed food. And, he, and then you just kind of, you know, you, need, you needed it. Um, and um, there's this really beautiful slow dolly shot across the, the set going to the noodle bar to the White Dragon, and it, and it was just like, what is this? This doesn't, this doesn't line up with anything that I've seen in the script or anything else, and it was just sort of like, going back to my love of the world, it was just literally just like this almost Terrence Malick kind of view of like, let's just absorb the world for a second. And there was tons of dailies of that. Um, and it was just, you know, it was a little bit extra detective work of figuring out the the fish scale and the guy next to him at the bar, oh, that could be the snake scale, that could be what leads him to Zora, you know. 
But that, it, it just it was a beautiful shot, and it was very slow and languid, and it just allowed me to just kind of sit at the, in the Telecine Bay and just stare. And just, I, I did that a lot. I just stared at the footage so often because it was like this, it was like time travel. You know, it was like going back to the set, me not having been there, being a little kid when it was done. Um, that was magical. Um, finding the alternate, the two different alternate endings of going off into the, the, the magical wilderness. Um, that was amazing. Like, there was actually dialogue, and there was, there was all of this stuff that was not in the theatrical happy ending. Um, but yeah, seriously, every day, it was, it was a new treat, a new surprise. It was a screen test. It was a visual effects test. Visual effects shots that were finished that didn't make it into the, any cut of the movie. Um, yeah, I can't describe just the, the sense of discovery and joy for being a Blade Runner nerd to just, you know, uncover this stuff on almost a daily basis for about, I think we spent about six weeks once we, we tried to document all of that footage once back in 2001, and um, Jerry Parencio, who co-owned the rights to the film, had all of this footage in a warehouse in Burbank and would not let us, at the time, because they didn't have a deal for any cut, um, would not allow us to take the footage off the property to a you know, proper facility to look at it. So Warner Brothers had to hire like five union editors to kind of go to the location, set up shop, and just kind of go through it themselves. But they weren't Blade Runner fans. They were not familiar with the film. So the notes would literally say, man in rain, uh, neon sign, you know. <laughs> I mean, and that, you know. So finally, when the deal was made with Perenchio and Yorkin, um, and we got the footage off-site, we got it in a proper facility, uh, Crest in Hollywood, um, and I said, I'm going to go through everything myself, because sometimes you can like have assistants or members of your team just do it. And I said, I need to see exactly everything we have to know what it's going to be used for. And that, to me, was probably the best experience I've had in the whole behind-the-scenes business ever, was just going through boxes of Blade Runner footage and then finding the raw dailies and then Ridley allowing me to edit that into these deleted and alternate scenes. Um, I asked him, you know, we, when Comic-Con was coming up and we were going to announce the, the final cut box set, I said, so can we show uh, some of these deleted scenes? And I, and I believe it was one with Joanna. And, and he said, well, this is, this is cool, but why do I want to show something that I didn't want to put in the film? Like, why, why do I want to show something that was, like, bad? And I said, no, 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 this is treasure. This is gold. And, you know, we've all seen your film. We all love your film. We love you. It's all great. Give the fans this little discovery. Because I had it every day for, like, the making of that, that project. You know, I've said this online, and I've said it in print, and I can't say it in public enough, but I really appreciate Charlie's efforts to give us the final cut. I think he deserves a big round of applause. I'm, I'm a huge fan of what Charlie did. And, of course, let us not forget someone who was involved in the original Blade Runner, who I also think deserves a big round of applause. And you were also uh, involved in the final cut. You should talk about your, your final cut experience because you were in the final cut. Yeah. Yes. I do want to talk about that because, um, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed the, uh, a couple things. Uh, the dance sequence, which we never got to because it was the end of the film. I came on at the end of the film they were running out of money, they were run- the time was running out, there was a writer's strike, there was all kinds of things going on. It was, it was very political and very crazy at the end. Um, the dance was going to be amazing. Uh, we didn't get to it. Um, there are two things I want to talk about. I shot it by myself 
with Charlie's um, inspiration when we did the box set, and I kept saying to him, Jesus, I, I, we, we have to redo that, that going through the glass. We have to redo it. It drives me crazy. You can see the stunt woman, and you know that it was like 4 o'clock in the morning that they, they didn't even have a wig for her. And at the last minute, the hair people are going through a trunk of wigs. I, I couldn't believe it. And I was there and I was watching it. And, I'm, and they're putting on this tatty wig. And I'm going, oh, God, no, that's horrible. All this work, all this time. Anyway, she did a brilliant job. But for 25 years, it drove me crazy. So 25 years later, I still had the costume. We reshot it. I reshot it against a green screen. That um, was the special effects guys that um, helped put it together. We spent, I don't know, three quarters of a day. Uh, the way it worked out was it was kind of like a boxing ring and I, I did all the motions that the stunt woman had done. They took my face and my upper body, I guess, and, and just uh, somehow morphed it in there and it is brilliant. It's brilliant. Now it's me. It's really me. And I'm very proud of that actually because it, um, you know, 25 years later and you're trying to remember what. <laughs> it wasn't about the feeling. It was actually watching the screen on the side doing the motion with the expression and the pain and angst that Zora felt 25 years ago. So it was a really interesting, wonderful thing that got accomplished, and that is in the final cut. Then, it was about eight years ago, I couldn't stand the fact that the snake scene never got shot. <laughs> so I hired a crew, I hired a herpetologist and um, uh, a little film group, and we shot some photographs, and then at the end of the day, uh, we did kind of like a snake dance, which is up on YouTube if you haven't seen it. You can just go Zora snake dance, and there it is. And one other interesting thing about that. Uh, last minute when we did shoot that, uh, the uh, photographer and I and the director, we shot in some light that was colored light. It was... Um, yellows and oranges just to make it look different and I I don't know it ended up in 2049 that's, that's those same colors isn't that funny um, but there you go if you want to take a look it's, it's not the same Zora that would have been shot you know 30 some years ago but um, it's not bad it is not bad. Uh, one thing Joanna has modestly omitted was the fact she did say she had the same costume. She had, didn't say that she fit exactly into it 25 years later. <laughs> My favorite scene in the deleted, there's a lot of stuff. And of course, I was around when they shot a lot of these things. And I'd always forgotten. I kind of had a dim memory of a moment where Ridley just kept the camera on Harrison thinking when he was in Leon's apartment. 
and it's just a long shot, long, long held shot that's got a slow push in, and you can literally see him thinking. And I was, you know, it jarred my memory when I saw that because I went, oh, damn, I, that was one of those ones I really wanted them to put in because you could just see the mental processes going. And when we found that footage, it was, it was a beautiful shot, but we were trying to figure out what motivates the cut to keep that shot up there for that long because we didn't know exactly because there was no audio for that. It's just, you know, it's MOS. So what, what really kept it alive was the Vangelis score that we found where it's like it's almost the music is thinking just the way the Deckard is thinking. And then plus, I knew that we had found the footage of Leon leaving the bathroom after they left. So I, I figured, okay, Deckard is like in his superhuman detective mode where he's just calculating what's going on in the room and he may not know that Leon's there but he knows something's up uh, because I mean I, I believe you know you've documented there's like there were multiple versions of Leon hiding in the, in the bed and like up in the ceiling of the bathroom which is kind of how we faked it in the edit we didn't have footage of Leon hiding we only had him coming out of the bathroom so we foleyed in some sound of like a grunt like uh, and then a landing and then uh, and then he comes and then he comes walking out like that's all that's the only way we could sell that he was up in the ceiling but um yeah i mean that that to me is like probably one of my favorite moments that you just brought up is just just deckard thinking I, I, and it's really beautiful joanna my question is for you um you talk about the film in a way that a lot of actors that i've spoken to don't talk about their past work you are you really go on about how amazing it is. And I'm curious what your reaction was after you went to the premiere. How did you process it? Did it blow you away as you talk about it today? I mean, you talk about it as, as it rightly so is, this very profound, moving experience. And other actors I've spoken to in various other projects, they'll be like, oh yeah, that was, you know, whatever, I'm on to the next thing. But you really take the time to give Blade Runner the love that it deserves as not just as an actor, but as a viewer, and I find that a very interesting perspective from someone so integral in, in the film. So I'm curious, did that happen over time, or did that happen right away? Um, can you kind of make that a... Can you make that a small question? <laughs> did the film impress you right away, or was it something you grew to love? Well, because I had seen a lot of cuts of it, and I knew that when I was shooting the film, it was going to be something else, something that no one had ever seen before. You know, I... I, it, it, it gives me just thrills every time I see it. I'm, I have a funny reaction to my death that always makes me cry. And not because I'm going to die one day, but because I think it was one of the most tender, beautiful death scenes I've ever seen. I, I, I sort of compare it to Gene Hackman's death scene in Under Fire, and also Marlon Brando's uh, death scene when he falls down in the water. What was the name of that movie? I'll come up with it in a second. But there, there are certain death scenes that stand out in my mind because they are, they are just so incredibly 
powerful. And you know, it's not easy to die on film. It's, and I've done it several times. <laughs> I mean, like a lot of times. And uh, there's that moment when, you know, your eyes are glossing over and, and you really, you know, as an actor, you really have to go somewhere else to get into that space. I kind of enjoy it. It's, you know, because I'm a Leo and I'm a cat, I've, I've had nine lives and I've had probably 35 lives so far. And they just keep going on. But um, anyway, that's my answer. Um, I, yeah, uh, um, again, I, you know, I was so lucky and privileged to be there so early and to know the source author. So I always think, for me, my Blade Runner experience starts in the summer of 1968 when I was just going into college and I read to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep for the first time. And so from there on is where I'm, I am. And so, literally, from the moment I first met Ridley, and I met, like, this human laser, who at the same time was very funny and very just absolutely accomplished, but just so serious and just so focused. And, you know, and we hit it off, by the way, right away. And um, uh, it, was, it was really a remarkable thing to see it come together. I knew who Sid Mead was because I was a rock fan and I had a bunch of his album covers that he had done. And I also knew about the Sentinel book. So all these different elements kept coming together. And then when they lit that set up, you know, for the first time on the back lot, it was like, holy smokes. And, and the next night, there's like, remember, there's like three, 400 people. They were all just like lining around. And they're all studio employees. People were coming from different studios to just hang out and watch these sets. It was amazing. And, and yet, a lot of people that were making it didn't get it. I mean, honestly, there was, it was kind of like, what are we doing here? And why is this director making us stay in this horrible rain bar rain for 18 hours while he sets up one single shot? And, you know, there was a lot of that going on. And uh, at the other, on the other hand, there were people like Joanna and Katie Haber and Eber Powell and Michael Dealey and, of course, Ridley, and a few others. Mostly, interestingly enough, the British contingent um, who really understood that this was something special, you know? And, uh, and then it came out and it died. I remember being in, I've told this story, being in the Westwood uh, when they had the 70 millimeter. And I, it was like 8 o'clock at night on opening night. It was like 14 people in the theater. Uh, excuse me? You know? And then I realized, it just slowly dawned on me, I thought, oh, wait a minute, this isn't Han Solo, and this isn't Indiana Jones, and this is like people are going in expecting this really slam-bang action movie, and they get this depressive alcoholic who shoots people in the back. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's but, but, but I, I kind of, I you know, I was very enthused, and I was already a bit jaded. I'd already been around a while, and, you know, and, but when I saw what, every, and I saw Ridley... And, and, and let, me, let me be a fanboy for a second. Every single morning, Ridley Scott would wake up under the most incredibly difficult circumstances and get up like it was his first day. He would just plow, you know? And it was so inspiring in a way. It could be intimidating at times. But he was just never going to stop, you know? And I, I respected that quite a bit. Um, well, I was 15 when Blade Runner opened. 
Um, so therefore, my mom had to take me and my friends to go see it opening day. I, we actually, uh, yeah, we all went down to the Man Hollywood Theater, and it was about half full. And I came out of it very confused. I wasn't, I, this was not the film I signed up for. And it was the summer of 82 where there was so many amazing uh, science fiction fantasy horror films out that year. I mean, it's like a murderer's row of the best, you know, movies. And um, I kept seeing Blade Runner over and over again that summer. I kept going back to try to figure it out because I was so, it's not that I was confused, like I didn't understand the movie. It just, it was just not what I was expecting as such a, really extreme way. It was such a different film than what I was expecting. And the trailer doesn't, I mean, if you look at the trailers for Blade Runner, it doesn't, I mean, it kind of sells the noir detective thriller part of it, but it's, it's kind of indecisive in terms of how it's really trying to hit the audience. So, um, so it wasn't until 85, I was living in Barcelona, and um, someone I was just talking to, we were talking about movies, and this guy says, you know what movie I really love? Blade Runner. And then this trigger went off in my brain, and all those multiple viewings the summer of 82 just, just completely enveloped me. And I was like, yes, yes, it is great. It's an amazing film. And then I just started rolling with that for you know, years and years to today. It's like, it's just this discovery of a movie that you just have to let it take you over. And, uh, and it has, uh, and in some good ways and some not so good ways, but it's taken over my life. And, uh, and I, I, I think it's just, a, it's a world, you know? It's, it's like an artifact from the future. It's an actual tangible thing that just was beamed back to us that is not, like, again, going to 2049 for a second, 2049 is such a beautifully crafted film. Like, Roger Deakins' cinematography is gorgeous, but it's not, nowhere near as kind of punk rock as Jordan Cronenworth's cinematography was. I mean, I don't think, I might be wrong, but I don't remember a single handheld shot in 2049. It's all these clean, elegant, beautiful, I mean, they're beautiful shots, but it's, it's, it's like, it's art, and Blade Runner 2019, to me, is more of an experience, is more of a, it's, yeah, it's very punk, and, and that's kind of why I see the difference between the two and why I love the original so much, and the new one, I'm sort of like, well, that's very well done. Bravo. You know, but I really always go back to the original because it's an, it's an experience more than just a movie. That's fascinating. Um, we've, of course, lost some, uh, some real giants lately who were, in a large way, responsible for that incredible world that you're talking about. Um, We've, of course, talked at length about Rucker Howard's passing, and, and we will return to that. But we haven't really taken a time as a show to, um, to discuss Terry Rawlings. Um, and, and I think it would be, this would be a nice opportunity, if, if it's okay, for some of you to maybe share some memories of him, or if you have any anecdotes or anything. Uh, we'd love to hear some remembrances of Terry Rawlings. Yeah, I, Terry was great, and I, I dealt with him on a few projects. Um, I remember when we were looking for, uh, for Legend, for the director's cut of Legend. It was lost f- forever. Um, and, and he helped out, tried to help us find it, and um, we couldn't find it. And then one day uh, it was discovered in Ridley's office, like this print that it didn't even say Legend on it, it just said RSA. And someone put it up and it was just like, oh, that's the lost cut of Legend. And of course, as soon as that happened, Universal suddenly discovered it in LA, so they didn't have to ship it over. Um, but, uh, but Terry was really helpful with the, uh, the assembly cut of Alien 3 that I put together with my team. And that was a wonderful experience because David Fincher did not want to be involved in that. So again, we had the free reign, but I felt very strongly that it's not going to be a fan cut. We're not going like, to edit this together the way we want it. We're going to try to do detective work and find an actual existing, like the latest existing cut of the film that Fincher and Terry had worked on together and start from there. So that's what we did. And Terry guided us through that and we shot an introduction with Terry for the Blu-ray where he kind of introduces to the audience what it is you're about to see. Um, 
And then the same on Blade Runner. He was just always a really great advisor and kind of just, he was like our, our Jedi knight that just kind of like, you know, informed us and, and, and infused us with the, you know, the enthusiasm to do it, but also a little bit of history and a little bit of technology in terms of like, well, this is where it would be, or this is how you could save it, or this is how you could do this with that. I mean, it's just, it was just very random. It wasn't like he was there every day helping, but we would occasionally just like cross paths and say, hey, we're looking for this. Do you remember that? And he was just always so helpful. So he was a very charming, nice guy. And I really, it's interesting to me because he got a lot of grief uh, for his, the way he would re-edit scores, especially with Jerry Goldsmith um, on Alien. Um, and it was kind of a miracle that, that Goldsmith came back for a legend after how he was treated on Alien. But, but you, you look at um, like the, the, the Blu-ray, which has um, multiple isolated score tracks, and you can hear what Goldsmith originally intended and then what Terry and Ridley did. And Goldsmith's original score is gorgeous, it's beautiful, and it's a great sort of alternate universe version but I still have to say that the cobbled together, screwed up, anti-Jerry version kind of works. You know, it works on a weird level that, yeah, if you're a film, a film music scholar, you're going to say that's a mess. Like, that, they shouldn't have done that. But if you're an audience member who doesn't know who Jerry Goldsmith is, and you're just there with your popcorn to watch a movie, if it works, it works. So I, I love both of those worlds. I don't put one against the other. But Terry was a master at, like, the temp track and, and like, just... At least, if they, at least they started in a good place. Where they ended was always dictated by did Jerry Goldsmith deliver what Ridley wanted and Ridley then changing it how, to how he wanted it. But um, Terry, I thought Terry was a really wonderful man. Ditto. Um, Terry, uh, uh, Terry was one of my favorite people and someone I did keep in contact with for a long time. Uh, mainly because we found at the beginning that we both, to reference what Charlie just said, have a deep passion for soundtracks. And uh, we spent years where there would be like limited edition things where they would do 100 CD pressings of some really obscure, I don't know, Sergio Martino, you know, yellow, you know, thriller from the early 70s. And I'd send him off a CD and he'd send me off a vinyl from something. And, and he had a deep, deep knowledge of music, deep, deep, and a lovely appreciation of it. And in his study... Uh, I visited him once in London. <laughs> he had a uh, whole wall of nothing but CDs, and, and it was thousands. I mean, just thousands of them. And, you know, and he also was a classical music buff, and, and he was so easy to talk to. And uh, at the same time, you know, he, this is a guy who had been through all the wars. I mean, he had a lot of experience in a lot of different films. But he was so gifted and yet so down to earth and he's funny and charming and warm and helpful and, you know, I'm gushing, but he really was a nice guy, bottom line. But one of the things I want to always say about Blade Runner is for, for me, I mean, well, I've seen every frame like Charlie once or twice, um, but from the moment Pris first appears walking past the, you know, the parking meters, that moment to me to the end of the film is one seamless montage the editing on that is incredibly fluid it just never stops it just flows and flows i don't see any hiccup or a moment that stops and that's terry you know obviously in conjunction with ridley but uh, oh and you mentioned alien you know at the end of the music there when uh, you know sigourney is in the uh, coffin or the cryo chamber and, uh, you know, you have that beautiful, you know, silent kind of peaceful piece of music. That was Terry. And that was Terry Rawlings' idea that came up with that. And so Terry was a really gifted guy, and I, I really miss him. You know, he and Rutger, uh, and Steve Vaughn, uh, you know, the still photographer, 
uh, who was also a fine arts photographer. And, and I worked with him on Starship Troopers and a couple of other pictures, and uh, we've lost some really, really talented and wonderful people from that show. Um, just so you guys know, all this month on my Twitter account, I've been sharing rare photos of Stephen Vaughn's. Um, I've been digging up things that I don't think most people have seen or anyone has seen. And it's just amazing to me how beautifully he, he documented the moments of Blade Runner um, through, like a, through a photojournalistic eye. And um, so if, if you're interested, um, all this month I've been just randomly putting up kind of rare photos that, uh, that Stephen Vaughn did. And by the way, he also worked on 2049, which is kind of an interesting way to end his career. Well, and they, they asked, asked uh, uh, Denny actually asked for it to work with him on 2049. Although I am a little pissed at Steve because um, he took a picture of me in a spinner and it was black and white and color and it was off and it was one of the spinners that had the Volkswagen kink wheels on it. Damn it, we can't find it. I've never been able to find it. Have you? Uh? <laughs> All right, we'll exchange money afterwards. This is right, right, Charles? Free Twitter? Okay, so you can... You can uh, at- Lazarica, you can look up the spelling, but there it is for Charles' Twitter if you want to go see those photos. I have a quick little story about um, the, uh, you know, Sid Mead designed the cars, but there is a 93-year-old man that lives in the Mojave Desert (laughs) named Gene Winfield who created them. And he is still painting cars and racing cars I went out to visit him uh, not too long ago, and he had uh, the little yellow car that I died next to in his yard. So it, I, I took pictures of it. I mean, I'm on Instagram and all that stuff, and you can you can find them. I have a whole bunch of pictures of him. But can you imagine that? 93 and still going, and uh, smart and hip and really talented. Um, a quick story about Rutger, who I had just adored. He was, he was so easy. He was such, he was such a gypsy. Um, I related to that so much um, because, um, and maybe because back in my background, uh, we had a, a baron was part of my family, and he fell in love with a, a gypsy. And they, uh, what do you, you know, they disowned him. She came to the States. She was pregnant. He followed. Um, he fell off a ladder at 32 and died. But in the meantime, that gypsy thing runs on. And maybe that's how I was able to uh, relate to Rutger in such a, a warm and wonderful way. He, he loved my snake. Uh, he would come to the house and, you know, hang out with the snake, love to wear it. And uh, such an interesting man, such a, such a free, awesome, big, wide man. He was wide. He had a, a very <laughs> wide hips. And this utterly stunning face, just stunning, and how... You know, creative of him to come up with the the white hair and the the look and and you know to audition in such a way with Ridley that 
Ridley was shocked, but ended up hiring him. And just, I just loved his sense of rhythm in the world. He had great rhythm. He was a man that was, I don't think, was scared about anything. He let everything come through him. He like channeled his characters. He channeled humanity. He was a, a you know, he was a wonderful and philanthropist. I mean, he was involved with uh, the AIDS movement. He gave tons of money. Uh, worked relentlessly to, uh, you know, elevate humanity. Um, so I feel very, very fortunate to have spent time with him. And, and I have to say, you know, to these guys here, I thank God for Blade Runner nerds, right? I mean, honestly. <laughs> because look at how far it's gone. I mean, this is the last year. This is it, November 2019. But I think it's going to go on because of people like you and people like them who will continue to write about it. I will continue to talk about it because it's, it's uh, such a part of my soul. I mean, I, I really feel like I was almost born to play Zora. Isn't that weird? But somehow to be this, this snake woman that is... Um, the exotic and uh, sexy, but driven and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm older now, but I look back at that person and I, I still feel like I have that person inside of me. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that'll never stop. It'll never stop in me. And I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I thank God that I had the, the opportunity you know, to be in this moment of magic because it was magic. Everyone that got together on that film, the creative people, the actors, the, you know, the behind the scenes, the, the, the publicists, the, you know, everyone, everyone had something so special going on and it all came together. It was really quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, so I'd like you to pass it to Paul and then Charles next, but uh, Joanna has this ability, and we've seen this in the interview before, she's always uh, I don't know if she's psychic, but she's always preempting all our questions, like those were literally the last two questions to close the panel, was talking about Rucker and then talking about this fan group, so if you could just follow Joanna, she was already ahead of the game. So. Well, what was after jo uh, so, so in closing, then... in closing, we wanted to briefly, you know, talk about you guys' relationship or experience with Rucker, and then talk about, you know, kind of the group that's here, Blade Runner fans in general, what you, what you like about that group as well. Oh, sure. Other fans. Um, Rucker, uh, <clears throat> you know, Joanna said everything she said about Rucker was very true. She, you, you came up with a great phrase last night. You said, disciplined but free. And uh, he was. He was disciplined but free. And um, when I was, I'll tell you a quick one. Uh, Rucker, Rucker and I, he could be very, uh, shall we say, mischievous. He liked to stir things up a little every now and then. And he would just do it just to, you know, be a little uh, Dennis the Menace is what he used to call himself a lot. 
And <clears throat> I remember, um, and I, oh, by the way, let me set this up. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing a BBC uh, radio interview about a week ago up in Stockton and Teesside, where Ridley Scott is from. And uh, we had just done a little Blade Runner presentation up there. And uh, I'm on the BBC, and I didn't realize the BBC wasn't like Sirius XM. Uh, Sirius XM, you can say anything you want. The BBC, you can't. And no one warned me about this. So the guy who is interviewing me says, well, tell me a, a funny record story. And I said, well, there's tons of them. I said, you know, the record could be very, very funny. And, and, but he liked to tease. And uh, Katie Haber, who we've mentioned, Catherine Haber, who is one of the production associates and was, worked very hard on the film and also deserves a lot of credit for... Uh, well, she was the one that got Ridley to cast Rutger Hauer. She showed him Soldier of Orange and some of the Paul Verhoeven films that he had done for, and back in the past. But anyway, um, there was a day when uh, Rutger and I were over at Katie's apartment. And God, you know, at this time, Rutger and I spent a lot of time together on and off. And we'd cross at cons. But also he'd come in town and he had a little place here in L.A. that was kind of a funky little arts kind of place that he kept hidden. Uh, from people and a little tiny place but it was you'd opened it up and it was in a whole art space and uh, there's a documentary that is out on YouTube uh, there's a Dutch documentary that shows his secret places in LA he had secret places he would go to in LA anyway we're at, we're at Katie's and we're having a meal or something coffee and out of the blue he looks at me and this is like decades later he goes don't you think it's a little arrogant to be someone who says he knows everything about Blade Runner I said, I said, I never said I knew everything about Blade Runner. He goes, well, don't you think it's arrogant to be someone who says he knows so much about Blade Runner? And Katie Haber is in the other side of the apartment in the kitchen. I go, hey, Katie. And she goes, yes, love. I can't do an English accent. But she said, yes, love. And uh, I said, Rooker just said I'm arrogant. Am I arrogant? And she goes, yes, love. <laughs> and I looked at Rooker and I go, well, fuck me. And I said this on BBC, and the next thing I knew, this guy just turned white, and he like leans forward, and I'd like to tell our readership, I mean our listenership, that this is an ignorant yank who doesn't know what the hell are. I mean, words to that effect, you know? And I sat there for a second, and I said, oops, I just dropped an F-bomb in Ridley Scott's hometown. <laughs> but that, that, was, that was Ricker. You know, Ricker liked to tease, but then he would just laugh, and you know. He gave me a hard time. Uh, in 2009, we did a uh, Blade Runner day at the British Film Institute uh, that was on the South Bank and uh, uh, Ridley was given a, 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 an honor by the Guardian newspaper but Rutger and I had a, a, about an hour on stage where we talked and that's the National Film Theater that's kind of a big deal there and all he did the entire time and he did it on purpose was like I'd say something he goes oh no that never happened you know, oh, I had blonde hair. No, I was a brunette. You know, it was just silly stuff. Uh, but he liked to do that kind of thing. But I missed him. Uh, he, he, was, he was a kind man. He was actually a rather kind guy, very gentle guy. And uh, Joe talked about how square he was. He had hands like ham hocks. Your hand would just disappear in his, you know. He was very gentle. One thing we had in common is I, I grew up in the military, in the Navy, uh, and spent a lot of times on boats and overseas and exotic places like the Philippines. And Rutger had been around, and he was a sailor too, so we had that in common. He had a boat that he took me out occasionally on. 
and I was lucky enough down in Marina del, del Rey. So he is just a nice guy. What can I say? Uh, yeah, Paul stole my big hand joke that I was going to share with you. Um, when I interviewed Rutger, I, I, I got to deal with Rutger a few times, but when I interviewed, interviewed him for Dangerous Days, we did it in Ridley's office uh, in West Hollywood, and it was interesting because we tried to time it because we were going to do Harrison Ford first. We interviewed Harrison first, who was our second interview out of all the 80 interviews we conducted. Um, and then Rutger was number three. He was going to come in. And we tried to time it so that Harrison and Rutger would cross paths, and we were going to shoot it, like just to see the reunion of these two guys after all this time. Um, well, Harrison was a half hour early. Rutger was an hour late. <laughs> so uh, that didn't happen. But one thing I remember was Rutger wanted to take a smoke break during the interview. And I said, oh, yeah, the Ridley has like a little private deck outside his office, and he would just go out there and smoke. And he reached out to me with his giant hand, and it was like a handful of bananas just kind of came and grabbed my, <laughs> my fist and, and pulled me outside like a little boy. He was huge. I mean, he's, he's not like, I mean, he's, you know, you could probably take Adam Driver in Last Jedi and uh, Rutger Hauer and have some kind of big, wide contest, but um, he was huge. And I, and I, I, I was just enthralled by this man because he was just, it wasn't just physical, it was, it was the soul of this guy it was big. He was just a giant in every way and his talent and his uh, kindness and everything. So that was a lot of fun. And then even more fun than that was I got invited to the, the world premiere of the final cut in Venice, Italy for the Venice Film Festival. And it was uh, Eddie Olmos and um, uh, Daryl Hannah and Rutger and Ridley and, um, and Issa Dick Hackett, Philip Dick's daughter, and, and me. And we were out there having fun. And just imagine being in Venice, Italy with that crew, you know, that team. Like, that was just... I couldn't believe I was there. In fact, after the screening of the final cut, there was, Ridley got this big standing ovation. It was like a five-minute standing ovation. And then he wanted to go grab dinner, and it was already like past midnight. It was like probably like one or two in the morning. And in Venice, you, you take water taxis everywhere, and Ridley had his own. Like Warner Brothers gave like their own water limousine, I guess. And we ended up going to his hotel, which was on an island, like a private island off the coast of, of, of Venice city proper. And they reopened the restaurant. It was closed. They reopened it just for us. And we're walking in the middle of the night, and randomly Spike Lee is sitting there having to drink with somebody. And, and Daryl is like, hey, Spike. And it was just like this surreal moment. But I remember like Rutger being like the calm. Like he was like this kind of just solid, calm force while the rest of us are just like doing this the whole time because we were just like, oh, my God, what a dream world we're in. Um, and I get the feeling like his entire life was a dream world. Like he was living a dream because he was just like this... Steady presence, and I love the what, disciplined but free. Is that what you said? And that, or, yeah, that was that was that's exactly right. I think that's the perfect way to think of him. Um, and you know, you asked me, and then I'll let Charlie finish um, about the legacy of Blade Runner, and yeah, about how, the fans. But sure, the fans. Oh, you know, hey, I'm a fan, so you know, whenever I whenever I am, uh, do an appearance or whatever, I'm not the kind of guy that like comes late and scurries away. You know, I'm always down, like, talking with people, and, you know, I'm just part, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> why do you think I wrote the book? You know, I love that film. And uh, I've always had a passion, um, even though I was a studio executive and a CG supervisor and an actor sometimes and, you know, produced shows in foreign countries and been through the mill, I came out the other side, and I still love film. I still have a passion for it. I still go into movies. Uh, Joe and I go to the movies sometimes together. And, and, and we just sit there, and the lights go down, the curtain opens, or usually the, you know, 
Well, I won't say. Anyway, um, it, it, something comes on, and I'm a kid again. I'm just a blank slate, you know, astonish me, you know. And I think that's what happens with every successive generation of new Blade Runner fans. When I was at the Royal Albert Hall a few weeks ago, I, I don't know if I mentioned this, where they had uh, the big screening, and they took off the Vangela soundtrack, and they had an orchestra play underneath. Every single seat in the Royal Albert Hall was taken, and that's a huge place, and as I looked around, I were leaning, Eva and Powell and I were like leaning out of the box we were in like this to see who was there. And it was a whole cross-section of generations. It was little children. It was like adolescents, teenagers, college people, people my age who first saw it when it came out, people who were like in their 40s and their 50s. And that's what I love about this film. It, it's an evergreen. It seems like every 10 years, there's a whole new surge of people, a whole new surge of people. And, you know, that's just a testament to, you know, what, a, what, a, what an enduring classic it is. Yeah, I don't really have much to add to that. I, I just, I feel like it's a film where every time you see it, you see something new. Like, you could see it 300 times, and I always see a little detail, a little thing I just, I've never caught before. So that keeps the film alive. Uh, certain controversies like Decarep keep it alive. Uh, you know, people love to argue over that. And we made it two that. hours without talking about yeah. that somehow. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. But, you know, one of the best things about Blade Runner is also its curse, which is it's been copied so many times since 1982. So the kids look at Blade Runner and they're like, yeah, I've seen that like on everything. You know, it's like every video game I play is Blade Runner. So, um, and that's probably why 2049 didn't quite break out because it wasn't as mind-blowing as Blade Runner was back in 1982. Like in 82, Blade Runner was a, was a serious event in terms of like world-building, design, um, just moments that were just so unforgettable. Even if the film didn't connect with audiences then, because that's not what they wanted back then, it just, it just grew over time. And I believe, like, as Paul has often said, like, the home video explosion really helped keep Blade Runner alive until it could get to the work print leaking out, until that allowed the director's cut to happen, until that allowed the final cut to happen. I mean, there's all, like, these kind of leapfrogging events that just keep it going. So I'm curious now, as, as Joanna was saying, is this, is this the end? Um, I, I don't think it's the end, but I'm curious to see where it goes from here in terms of appreciation and, fan, and the fan appreciation of the original film. Especially because... Um, am I having a stroke? Sorry. Um, uh, because there's so many versions of the film, too. So it's like, which version do you watch? You know? and, uh, and there's different camps for all five of them on home video, or seven if you count... <laughs> your list um, so eight okay and the TV version I worked on um, so I don't know I think that uh, Blade Runner fandom is, is always going to be there I think there's always going to be a, a life to Blade Runner I just don't know if it's going to change much because I think the reason people love the film is pretty constant like the, it's the world or it's the characters that you they're so interesting and different and you kind of sympathize with the replicants but um I don't, I don't know if anything that's come out since Blade Runner in terms of like the comics or the new movie or anything else have necessarily given it a far-reaching life beyond where Blade Runner has already taken it on its own. But that's me. I'm, I'm kind of bitter about 2049, but we'll save that for another conversation. Fair I, enough. I, I just, one thing I find really interesting, this will be short... All of the critics right now are saying, well, gosh, here we are in Los Angeles in 2019 in November and there aren't flying cars. How dare Blade Runner make a false prediction? 
Well, excuse me, that film was never meant to be some kind of projected documentary, you know? It was like, as Ridley Scott said many times, it was, it was an adult heavy metal comic strip. It's not supposed to be some kind of hardcore prophecy or a future casting, but it's just hilarious. They're everywhere now. They're all saying, well, this came true and this came true and this came... But believe me, when people, you know, there were some concerns like the death of the animals and atmosphere and so forth, but no one, I think, ever thought that they were trying to write the future on uh, tablets of stone. All right, well, on that note, we're going to close the panel portion, so let's get a nice warm hand of applause for, uh, for our guests. find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group. <laughs>